we have seen that the Holy Spirit frees us from condemnation. That's what we see in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. The law was weakened through the flesh. It it could not free us from condemnation, but God did what the law could not do. And and the pronouncement there in verse 1 is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, the Holy Spirit then lives in us and we in him. That's Paul's point in verses 5 to 8. God has moved into his people. We don't go to a temple to worship him anymore. We don't come to an auditorium fundamentally to worship him anymore. He's not restricted to a place of worship. We have become his temples in whom he lives by his spirit. And we live and move and have our being in him. And the natural consequence of this is in verses 9 to 11. The Holy Spirit gives us life. Even though we were dying, yet we live. Uh, We are dying because of sin, but we are alive because of righteousness, and that life that we have is life given to us by the Spirit of life. Number four, if that weren't enough, the Spirit adopts us into the family of God and assures us that we are God's children. He comes into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. It's the spirit of adoption. And so we may know by the Spirit's work deep in our lives that we really are God's children through faith in Christ. And the Spirit prays for us. He intercedes for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words. And and not only does he pray for us in these groanings in verses 18 to 25, but those groanings are going to now give way to glory in verses 26 to 30. He's going to take us through the entire chain of salvation so that our lives is not bound up in glory. Our lives is not summed up in glory, but our lives are going to give way Uh, excuse me, not bound up to groaning, our life is going to give way to glory, to the indescribable, the ineffable beauty and splendor and majesty and weightiness of God's own character. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Who of us isn't weak, doesn't need help? And who of us who's a Christian can confidently say we have that help in God's Spirit. As we said last week, we would be guilty, lonely, dead, orphaned, doubting, groaning, and helpless people were it not for the presence and power and ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. His presence is necessary, and His work is deep. But so what? But so what? What's the conclusion of all these theological claims? What's the result of all that we have been talking about? What does this mean for us if we are Christians? What's the result? Well, the result, I'll put it this way, our main point for the sermon is an encouragement then. So what is then live like you have already won? Live like you have the victory. 
Live like you know the conclusion and you know that the conclusion is good, that we win. Live like you have already won. That's, I think, one way of giving you the gist of verses 31 and 39, Paul's conclusion to this magnificent chapter. Look with me at Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We've reached the conclusion of the chapter. Paul begins the conclusion by making us Step back for a moment. So to move back from the granular arguments that's going on from verses 1 to 30 and to kind of take in the whole. That's the point of that first rhetorical question. What shall we say about these things? Paul says, now I haven't dropped a whole lot on you. And what I want you to do right now is to sort of take it all in, to, to get the sweep of it, to get the scope of it, to get the balance of it, and to bring it all home. What shall we say about these things? What shall we say about the golden chain of salvation in verses 28, 29, 30? That God has foreknown some, and God has called some, and God has justified some, and God has glorified some, past tense. What shall we say about that? What shall we say about the creation has been in groaning because it's been subjected to futility, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit has been inside of you, groaning himself, interceding in prayer. What you think about that? What shall we say about the fact that we are dead because of sin, but alive because of righteousness, alive because of the presence of the Spirit in our lives? What do we think about the fact that we were orphaned in sin, that we had no spiritual family, that we were destined for death, and God came along, saw us kicking in our sin, saw us headed toward destruction and said, I will adopt this one. I will make them my son. I will make them my daughter. And I will send my spirit into their hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, so that they may know that they have a father in heaven. What do we say about these things? 
Paul wants us to stand back, to look at the truths that he's been laying down. And he asks this omnibus question in verse 31. What shall we say about these things? Now, what follows are five more rhetorical questions that breaks down that big general question, what shall we say about these things? Five rhetorical questions that are meant to be answered in a particular kind of way, meant to be answered in a way that is to the benefit of the Christian, meant to be answered yes for the Christian, meant to be answered in a way that gives the Christian uh, confidence and assurance and hope. And five rhetorical questions that are meant to drive us deeper into what God has done for us through Jesus Christ in the gospel and what God is keeping us for through the Holy Spirit in assurance and preservation and sealing. Five questions. Number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Sometimes we worry so much about who's against us, we forget who's for us. We worry about coworkers being against us. We worry about that particularly rough-looking kid down the street being against us. We worry about this political party being against us. We worry about secular liberals being against us. We worry about uh, uncontrolled cops being against us. We worry even about demonic forces being against us. But this question puts God in the emphatic position. God comes first in the sentence in the Greek. He doesn't just ask you the question, who can be against you? There's a lot of people that can be against you. There's a lot of people who can be your enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all enemies against the Christian trying to destroy the Christian. No, but he puts it in a context. If God is for us, who then can be against us? If that don't excite you, then your thoughts of God are too small. Nowadays, people use the word God a lot. You can tell by the way they use it that they don't know him that the concept of God is not biblical, it's muddy. Talk about the big man upstairs. Sort of picture God as old and desperate for our attention. You listen to some people talk, you think God was really kind, he's nice, but he's unable to do anything about anything. Or the opposite, you think God is angry all the time, just looking for an opportunity to strike us down. Or maybe you just think God is just really there for when I get in trouble. Then he can bail me out. Otherwise, I get to go on about my life. But beloved, God is God. God is God. God has all power to do anything. You know, with a two-letter word, God created the entire universe. He said, be and things that weren't leapt into existence. This God has all power in his hand, and God is all wise. Ain't nothing happening in our lives too confusing, too confounding, too perplexing to make God stumble. He declares the end from the beginning. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. And and God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. The psalm writer says, if I descend down in Sheol, lo, there you are. If I go up to heaven, there you are too. His presence is inescapable. 
This is the same God who called ten plagues on the most powerful country in the Old Testament, Egypt, and brought a pharaoh to his knees. This is the same God who made the waters step back and stand up while his people crossed through. This is the same God who raises the dead. This is the same God who took us from death to life. If God is for you, who can be against you? What enemy do you have that's worth taking note of? What what troublemaker comes into your life that you ought to give any attention to, given that God, notice, is for us? I like that. He's on our side. Not because we write, but because he's God. And because he's loved us. Because he's called us to himself. The text says, if God is for you, if is not there a debate about whether God is for you, it has the meaning of since. Since God is for you, it's a fact. God is in fact for you. He's on your side. Who can be against you? It's all right. I brought my amen this morning. (laughs) Christian, what challenges do you have? Really? What enemies do you have, really? About 50 pounds ago, I used to play pickup basketball. And almost always start, God takes the ball out to start the game, and you're on defense, you say something like, check up. They check you the ball, and you look around the rest of your teammates, and you might look at a brother and say, who you got? He said, I got Terrence. With another brother, who you got? I got Payne. So that means he's going to play defense on Terrence. He's going to play defense on Malcolm. His job is to stop Terrence, stop Malcolm from scoring on defense. Beloved, the gospel has been bounced past into your life, and we get to say, check up. And we get to look around, and we get to ask the question, who's going to check God? Who's going to defend God? Who's going to stop God? God just dropping buckets all day long on our enemies. Just always dropping buckets. God is scoring when he wants to score. He's setting picks when he wants to set picks. He's rolling and catching alley-oops when he wants to. God can't be stopped. If God is for you on your squad, who can be against you, beloved? What does this mean? It means that there's a sense in which, beloved, when it comes to our salvation, that the Christian is invincible. You know this, right? The devil can't destroy God's work in your life. The world can't destroy God's work in your life. And though we fight with our flesh, the flesh can't stop God's work in your life. He has began a good work in you. He's going to carry it on until completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It is guaranteed. So, Christian, you're invincible because God is for you. It may be that you're here as a Christian and you're still struggling with that thought. And you're wondering to yourself, what then is the proof that God is for us? How do we know this? Are we just telling ourselves what we want to hear? Are we psyching ourselves out, psyching ourselves up? Or, or can we be certain about this? And you may be looking around at your life and saying, I, I don't see the proof in my life. My life is in shambles. My, my life is wrecked. My heart is all over the place. My mind is, is anxious. I'm carried away with every fear. Where, where's the proof that God is on our side, is for me? The proof is in the next question. Verse 32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The proof is in the assumption of the question, the context of the question, the fact of the question. Notice, God did not spare Jesus, but gave him up to death on a cross for us all. That's the proof, beloved, that God is for us. It could have been you on the cross. It should have been me on the cross. But the proof is there was a substitute on the cross. And not just any substitute. Notice now, God gave his own son up for us. Perhaps you're here this morning, you didn't know that God had a son. It does. A unique son. A special son. Jesus, who is also God the second person of the Trinity. They had lived together with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past before anything was ever created. And they had enjoyed among themselves perfect fellowship and perfect love. They had rejoiced together in perfect glory. And this is why when Jesus comes into the world at his baptism, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And why Jesus prays in John 17 before his crucifixion, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the worlds began. It's a perfect inter-Trinitarian communion of love and glory, of, of wonder and splendor with no problems. This is God's Son. And the text says that God did not look at his Son and say, you know what, I'm going to give them everything but you. He didn't look at his son and say, you are too special to me to be given up. He didn't look at his son and say, you you know what, you don't deserve the sufferings and the afflictions and the judgment that they deserve, so I'm going to spare you from that judgment. He didn't look at his son and feel like, I'm going to jealously guard this unique person with whom I have forever known love and glory uh, and leave these people to themselves. The text says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if that falls light on our minds, it means we've not thought enough about just who God gave the sinless Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the all-loving Son of God, the all-merciful Son of God, the tender and wise and gracious Son of God, the self-giving Son of God. He sent His only Son into the world to die a sinner's death in our place. He gave Him up for us all. He's given us His very best. Now, having given us Jesus, the question is, how will He not also, along with Jesus, give us all things? Some of y'all think God is stingy. Because you see that all things there and you go, but I ain't got this thing and I ain't got that thing. I've been praying for this for a long time. That ain't come to pass. Been praying for that. God ain't answered that. You know what that reaction indicates? Two things. You have devalued Jesus and you have thought more of those things than Jesus. Paul is in awe that God has given his own son. 
This is amazing to the Apostle Paul. This is amazing to all the Bible writers. And we've got 2,000 years of Christian history that's made us complacent about that fact. We take it for granted, and we devalue it, and we think it a small thing that Jesus died for us. This is an extravagant thing. This is a, a luxurious thing. This is an opulent thing. God has given himself in the most incredible way, and the reaction should be God has given us his son. I'm good. I'm good. How will he not also give us all things? He's given us his very best. Why am I tripping on something less? That's how we know God is for us. Imagine, if you will, that you knew a billionaire who would give his entire fortune to you. Maybe Bill Gates. Microsoft. By some providence, you meet Bill Gates, y'all get tight, and Bill say, you know what, man, I'm just going to give you Microsoft and all the billions that go with it. And you like, cool. You do that? See that on a handshake. What craziness it would be if Bill were to say to you, I'm going to give you Microsoft with all the billions, but there's this little patch to this software that I ain't going to give you that patch. Hold back that small thing in light of giving you the whole company. You go into Starbucks, you meet the owner of Starbucks, and the owner of Starbucks says, you know what, I'm just going to give you the company, all the billions, all the locations, all that good stuff. And you say, man, well, okay, can I get a cup of coffee? He says, no, 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 I ain't going to give you no coffee, though. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet God has given us his son, and we think he's going to be stingy toward us with all the other things that we need. Oh, if he's giving you his son, he's going to give you everything else that's fitting his will, fitting his son, and fitting for your salvation. The proof is that he's given us his son. So Christian, go ahead and believe God. Go ahead and trust him. Go ahead and put your faith in him. Go ahead and live by faith. Don't doubt. Don't shrink back. Don't get all rational like you're smarter than God. Don't start trying to read providence forward. Don't start trying to predict what's going to go on here or there or how God might do things. Just take him at his word. He gave you his son. He will give you everything that goes along with his son. Trust him. Believe him. Ray Ortland has a wonderful way of talking about this in his book on Romans 8. He says this, We have arranged our affections so that to us a new job is more to be desired, more to be sought after, more to be rejoiced over than possessing the Son of God. If we want to feel loved by God, we must repent that we have disrelished God's greatest gift and plead with him that from the heart we would esteem Christ above all else. That way, having him, we know we already have God's best. We know he is going to throw in everything else we need to enjoy his greatest gift fully. And that is when we stop feeling sorry for ourselves and start to feel love. If you're still mad that you haven't gotten your will, then you are in your flesh 
And you are foolish to think you're missing that what you're missing is better than what God's giving. We need to reorder our affections so that Christ is to us the greatest gift that he really is. God has given us Jesus and will Jesus give us all things. This means, number two, this is what this means for us. Not only are we invincible, but our supplies are inexhaustible. The things that we need, well, they're not limited because God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, God who owns all things, that God is the one who is supplying to us. And so we are, in that sense, inexhaustible. Which brings us to Paul's third question here. He moves now into the courtroom. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the question. In light of this great salvation accomplished by this great God, who can, who can blame, who can condemn, who can charge God's chosen people? Who's got something to say? This is like the wedding ceremony. That part where you're doing the vows and you say something like this. If anyone knows any reason why these two may not marry, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. You should have seen the way Thomas was trembling. <laughs> Usually there's no answer that comes. Or you're in the courtroom and the judge asks the prosecuting attorney if he has any witnesses to bring to the, to the trial and the Attorney says, I, I rest. I got, I got no more witnesses. I got, I got nothing else to say. Satan, our accuser, has been accusing us. He's been slandering us. He's been gathering all the evidence that he thinks he can gather against us. But, but our trial will have no witnesses. Our trial will have no one there bringing any charge against us. Why? It says there, it is God who justifies. Paul starts answering his own questions. It gets so good to him. He gives us the reason. It is God who justifies. God defends. God provides. Now God justifies. In other words, God declares you, Christian, righteous. Now, this is good. He doesn't simply declare you not guilty. That's the verdict that human courts reach. That's the verdict that human judges reach. They don't really know what happened. They just got to look at the preponderance of the evidence. Based on the evidence they see, they've got to make a judgment about whether or not you're guilty. And the, and the best you can do in a human court, an American court, is to declare that you're not guilty. They can't go so far as to declare that you're innocent. They don't know that. But God's not like an American judge. God's got knowledge of all things. And God is constantly looking at the gospel, at the cross of his son and the resurrection of his son. And God is saying, that's the only evidence that's admissible in this court. Christ died for you. His blood covers you. You have been freed from sin. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. You have been freed from the judgment against sin. Therefore, I declare you justified. I declare you righteous. That's why verse 1 was true. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, heaven sees perfectly, sees right to the sun sees faith in the Son, and makes its verdict righteous, justified. That's why there can't be no charges against you. 
Because once God justifies you, beloved, you cannot be unjustified. Do you know that? Maybe some of you have come from backgrounds that have taught you that you could lose your salvation. That's false, beloved. It ain't like there's an appeal court. God declared you justified and he missed something. And there's somebody coming with some other evidence that you ain't really all that justified because God's like, no, I'm looking at the cross. I'm looking at the blood. I'm looking at my son. Ain't no other arguments admissible. When you have reached that verdict, that verdict can't be overturned. Don't you know heaven's judgments won't be defeated? They won't be appealed. You have been justified through faith in Christ. You will always be justified through faith in Christ. God is not just the chief justice. He's the only justice. And he has ruled justified. You see what this means for us, don't you? If God has justified you, then you have immunity. You're immune to Satan's charges. You have immunity against your own conscience. Your conscience might accuse you. Your conscience might pull, sort of pull faults before your eyes. Your conscience might show you how far short you come. But your conscience ain't the judge. God's the judge, even of your conscience. And he has ruled us justified. You are invincible. You are inexhaustible. You have immunity. Which brings us to the next question. Who is to condemn? Paul answers it. A longer answer this time. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only is God the Father the judge, but Jesus is the attorney. He's the advocate pleading our case. And Jesus' entire case, as we said, depends not on us and our performance. His entire defense depends upon his sacrifice for us. Jesus is the one um, that has gone to the cross and has died for us. The penalty has been paid. Now, the text says that there's also a receipt, the resurrection. That's the receipt for the sacrifice. The, the resurrection is the notary that shows that all of our debts have been paid in full. Not only did he pay our debts, but he became our attorney. He approaches the bench, sits at the Father's right hand, the place of honor in the Bible. There at God's right hand, notice what he does for us. He indeed intercedes for us. He prays for us. He steps in for us. Just as the Holy Spirit is interceding inside of us with groans that cannot be understood, God the Son is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding with the Father in heaven. And here's the thing. Notice the verb tense. Jesus is interceding for us right now as present continuous. He will always be pleading for us. He will always be interceding for us. He will always be praying for us. He will always be stepping in for us. That means that when you look up and you find your failure, you find your sin, you don't, you don't sort of look up and then wonder, uh oh, wait a minute, was I doing that when wasn't nobody looking? Jesus wouldn't have my back. No, he's holding you down right next to the Father interceding for you every moment of every day, every waking hour, every sleeping hour, the Son of God is pleading his own blood on your behalf. Praise be to God, we're never without an intercessor. 
Hebrews 7.25 puts it this way. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives forever. And he always lives to intercede for you. The perfect high priest. So the question is, who can condemn you when Jesus is at God's right hand interceding for you? Christian, we're the most prayed for creatures in, in existence. You're at all times covered in prayer. Not just human prayer, but divine prayer. As we said, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Son of God intercedes for us. So the question becomes, who is there to condemn you? We look around the courtroom, there are no witnesses. There's nobody bringing a charge. There's no one to condemn us. We're standing in this courtroom before God, completely righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. This is why, beloved, cancel culture can never be gospel culture. This is why judgmental attitudes can never be gospel attitudes. This is why fault-finding legalism can never be grace-giving witness. Since Jesus has paid it all and prays for us, there's nobody left to condemn us. That's liberating. That is liberating. Try to get your mind and your heart around that. That in the presence of God, there's only one appearing, Jesus. He is interceding for us with a God who himself is for us. And there's nobody else in the courtroom. That's freedom. That's mercy. That's grace. It's what God gives us in the gospel to everyone who comes to Jesus in faith. This same verdict, these same intercessors, this same God would be for you if you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ as your Savior. We're all like the woman taking adultery in John 8. She's dragged by a mob from the very act itself, drugged to Jesus somewhere in town. The mob has stones ready to cast them because they know the law. And they come to Jesus and say, what should we do with this woman taking in adultery? Jesus, real shady, never looks up, draws in the dirt, says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Waits a moment, probably hears a few stones dropping onto the ground. Looks up and says, woman, where are your accusers? gone, all of them. And Jesus says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's what's happened to you, Christian. All of your accusers have vanished. And Christ says, neither do I condemn you. I don't judge you. Go, go in my freedom. Go in my righteousness. Go and be free to sin no more. This is what's happened to us because of Christ. So, if Jesus died, rose, and now intercedes for you, it's the next thing that's true about you. You're unimpeachable. You're unimpeachable. Y'all stay in the Bible now. 
the Bible now. <laughs> it's the closest I can get to an I word. But it fits. Unimpeachable, beloved. Which brings us to our final question. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We stepped out of the courtroom now. We stepped out into the light of day. The trial is over. The reporters thrust their cameras and their microphones into your faces and cameras are flashing and reporters are leaning in and they ask you the question. They always ask every defendant who's been found not guilty or in our case righteous. They ask that question, how do you feel now that the trial is over? We think back on the trial. We were guilty. But Jesus paid the penalty. We were facing the death penalty, in fact. And Jesus suffered it in our place. We should have been condemned and sent to hell. But the, law, the judge looked out at our lawyer, his own son, and said, Justify. Verdict is not guilty, all because of God and his son. We think about all of that and we think about the question, how do you feel? And there's only one good answer, I feel loved. I feel loved. This is the longest answer to any of the questions that Paul has asked here from verse 35 down to verse 39. Why spend the most time answering this question about God's love? It's the answer we need most, beloved. It's the assurance we need most. Because if we're honest, we sometimes feel like something just might separate us from God's love. Something just might put some distance between us and the love of God. Something just might come between our relationship, might come between his affection and ours. And we imagine things. And Paul now, he's not ducking the hard things in life. He's not ducking the things that cause us trouble. In fact, he begins to list them. He says now, is it, is it tribulation? Is it, is it distress? Or persecution that makes you feel separated from God's love? Is it famine? You, you're hungry. You don't know where the next meal is coming from. You're facing housing insecurity. It makes you feel like God has forgotten you. God doesn't love you. Is it nakedness? Is it danger? There's shooting on your block and there's things happening in your apartment building. Is it, is it danger? Is it the sword? Is it violence of every sort? Paul says, let it rush to your mind. Let it come before you. Consider it. And Paul goes further. He quotes from uh, Psalm 44, and he says this. Now listen, for your sake, for God's sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul is not making like life is all cute and easy because these other things are true. 
There's still tribulation. There's still distress. There's still danger. There's still famine. There's still nakedness and sore. There's peril of every sort. And precisely because you are a Christian, there's a world out there that's been turned into a slaughterhouse that looks to put us to death because we are living for Christ's sake. We are persecuted and mistreated, beaten and killed. And the natural question would be, does God love us? Has he still love us? Has he forgotten us? And there are other pains far more personal, far more intimate and profound He or she who promised to love and keep and hold you forever just walked out. Life you carried in your body, you've lost it. There are diagnoses that strike seemingly right at the center of us. Breast cancer. There are troubles that we can't tell folk that whisper to us, you must not be loved by God. And in that moment, we've got something to decide. Do we listen to the trouble or do we listen to God? Do we listen to the suffering or do we listen to the Savior? Because Paul is asking this question in the context of very hard life. He's asking this question in the context of a very broken world. Who or what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he doesn't want you guessing at the answer. He doesn't want you thinking that he's being an escapist, not facing real life. So he lists all of these troubles. And then he says this in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. We are going through those things, but we're conquering. We're going through those things, but we are victorious. Why? Because he still loves us. And he says in verse 38, and this needs to be our declaration, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's that moment I wish I was a hooping preacher because that will hoop. I'm sure Paul was hooping right here. Paul says, I'm sure (laughs) that neither death nor life, (laughs) neither powers or rulers, (laughs) nor things present nor things to come, I'm sure. Y'all behave. He fully persuaded, as the sister said. There are some things that we got to know as Christian folk. Some things we got to be sure of. And indeed, some things to hoop and shout. One of them is, we got to know and be sure that there is nothing in all of creation that will separate you and me 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, Miss Carol, nothing, 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 Jamie. There's not a single thing that separates you from God's love. Nothing, my brother George, Thomas, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Bobo, brother, there's nothing you ever see, nothing you ever do, nothing you ever face. Oh, Tony, brother, hold this, man. There's nothing that will separate you from the love of God. April and April, Eugene and Christy, Titus. Oh, Lord, there's Christian. Brother, there's nothing that will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Christella, Travis, Miss Walker, Dee Dee, Susan, Brian, Sasha, Amanda, Eric, Tiffany, Christina, Sam, Delicia, Terrence and Stephanie, Michael, Dawn, Ryan, Cassandra, Arlette, your husband too. <laughs> if you leave with nothing from Romans 8, if the Spirit presses nothing into your heart, Shamar, then it's in Tasha if there's only one thing you hold on to. Hold on to these last words. Nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. In all of your sufferings, you have been made more than conquerors through him who loved us. I don't know what it is to be more than a conqueror, but it's good. It's real good. Church, let's get that down in our soul. Don't let your circumstances fool you. Life may be real hard, but God's love has not moved one inch. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, you have an inseparable, unconditional love from God. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can have that love too. In fact, God has shown you that he has that love for you by giving his son to die for you. You may not be a Christian, but you may know these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. He proved his love by giving his son to die on the cross for you. And he raised his son from the grave three days later so that you might have his love. A love that would make you more than a conqueror. A love that would lead you to be justified in God's sight. Declare it righteous. A love that would supply for you in your every need, inexhaustible. And a love that would make you invincible. For if God is for you, no one can be against you. If you're here this morning, don't leave without putting your faith in Jesus, 
and coming to know this God, you will never regret it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. We praise you that by your spirit, we've been made new, we've been given life, we've been adopted into your family and assured of your salvation. And by the work of your spirit in our lives, praying for us and keeping us and guiding us, we are convinced, O oh Lord, that we shall never be separated from your love. We pray that when we think of you and think of your thoughts about us, we would not, Lord, think that perhaps you're displeased or perhaps you're distant and unconcerned. But we pray that by your Spirit, our overwhelming sense, our overwhelming thought is that you love us. That we were created for your love that we are children of your love, that we'll never be separated from your love. Lord, fill your church with your spirit. With this sense of your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, thank you.